Our Holy Father, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to hear our children this evening and just the blessing that they are. And we pray as they're learning music and even scripture and memorizing psalms and the like that you'd bless that time this evening. As we open your word, we ask that you'd open our hearts to its truth, that we'd be more those than those who just hear, but those who are willing to uh, hear and obey and follow. So we need your grace to make this happen. I pray for your help tonight, that you would empower me, anoint me, give me wisdom and unction as you're only able to do. And we ask it all now in Jesus' name, amen. If uh, you're here for the first time, we are in our basic discipleship course. This is topic number eight, and the focus is developing an eternal perspective. Uh, By the time you're done, you'll have over 60 pages in notes. We have, if you remember from the first session, um, six objectives, one to distinguish between the judgment that the unsaved will face for sin and the judgment Christians will face for service. So we've been plunging into that for the last several weeks. To understand and apply the command of Christ to store up or lay up treasure in heaven, while at the same time being motivated by God's grace, we're trying to discern the basis by which God will grant heavenly rewards and crowns. And we'll be breaking some ground on that this evening. Um, And to know the relationship of our rewards to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We also hope to be able to clearly define the term steward and to be able to identify at least seven or eight areas in which God will assess our stewardship. And then to ascertain the difference between the things that are eternal versus those things that are purely temporal and the role that the Spirit of God plays in determining each. And then there's, as always, with each handout, a few verses we're trying to remember. We've covered now Roman numeral one. We finished it last uh, week on recognizing the shortness of life on earth. We then looked at Roman numeral two concerning the believer's judgment. Now we move to Roman numeral three. Uh, There in front of you this evening, we need to invest in eternity by living with an eternal outlook. By the way, if you are teaching this to your children, and I always suggest to parents two times their children should go through the discovery class, once when they're 12 and once when they're seniors in high school. if, If we as parents can master this material, I promise you, your children will grow to be strong believers who will have spiritual steel on their spine. And so if you are teaching it at the beginning of a Roman numeral, there's an italics here, kind of the overall objectives of what we're trying to accomplish in a particular section. And if you are here for the first time, there's a pen in front of you. You might want to fill in some of the blanks. It's necessary for those taking credit. I hope it's not too laborious for the rest of us. With that said, follow along. The Bible teaches that there are three kinds of judgments that we face as true Christians. If we have truly met Christ, in the past we've been judged as sinners, in the present we're being judged as sons, and in the future we will be judged as servants. If you've been saved, your judgment as a sinner is already passed. And we looked at that carefully when Jesus died for you on Golgotha. And that's why there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. To those who have received his gift of salvation, he promises us, truly, truly, or literally, amen, amen, I say to you, in other words, this is important, he who who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. If you've repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died a substitutionary death to forgive you and to change you, then God promises you will not have to face the great white throne judgment with the lost people of all time. We've noted that there are some people who think there's just one big judgment. There's actually a whole series of judgments, not only for those who are saved, But there are a series of judgments for those who are lost. But the final last judgment of all the lost, of course, is called the great white throne judgment. And as you read that passage carefully, there are no believers present. However, while I have in the past been judged as a sinner, 
Right now, in the present, I am being judged as a son. By the way, Paul uses that, let me say parenthetically, that same wording in 1 Corinthians 11 when we come to the Lord's table. He talks about judging ourselves, lest we be judged of the Lord, and he's speaking to believers. So I am being judged as a son because there is a judgment that we face as sons day by day. Day by day, God judges his children who have been born again, either in an instructive way or in a corrective way. And by the way, both are taught in the New Testament. Many times when people think of God's discipline, they just think it's corrective. Probably the majority of God's discipline is not corrective, it's instructive, assuming you're walking with the Lord. In either case, the Bible in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 says this, and we have forgotten And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So God administers his corrective discipline, like in a woodshed, and his instructive discipline, like on-the-job training to every child of God. So please understand, when he chastises us as sons, God is not trying to get even with us. God is simply correcting us for our good and for his glory. And I gave you a number of passages there that you might consider. Of course, the Proverbs 1 is the section of Scripture that Hebrews 12 is quoting. Yet the Bible also teaches that in the future, we will be judged as servants, Just as the great white throne judgment is only for the lost, even so, the judgment seat of Christ is only for the saved. Let you write that in. And as we have studied previously in this section, the judgment of the just or the judgment seat of Christ, a number of terms that we use to refer to it, it's called literally the bema in Greek or hebema. but you'll hear Christians call it the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ or sometimes the judgment of the just, all right? That's, we're talking about the same thing. The just, meaning the saved, are there, okay? And we have studied previously in this section, the judgment of the just does not determine whether you go to heaven or hell, but it is God's way of setting your life in review so that he might justly reward you accordingly for all of eternity. And so... It is very important that we understand on what basis God will reward us. It is important to ask, what criteria will God use when he evaluates our service for him? What exactly is he going to look at? This is important. And so what criteria will he use when he looks at us? And it's important to ask that as he evaluates our service. What makes for a gold, silver, and precious stones? You'll remember that text from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. He likens a pastor's work, but by application, every believer in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, we saw there's three central passages dealing with our judgment. What criteria makes a gold, silver, or precious stone kind of work versus wood, hay, or straw? In this section, we examine in detail the three principal criteria that God will use. All right, first, God will evaluate what we do for him. This is the first area. God will evaluate what we do for him. That's somewhat obvious, but maybe not so much, uh, because we're going to look at seven or eight areas specifically that God focuses on when we think about what we do for him. Maybe we'll get through two tonight. This section, notice the summary here, though it is difficult to know precisely what makes up a golden work versus a straw work. So when you look at those categories, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, they're general categories. I don't think we can say, well, this is a gold work, that's a silver work. He's just talking about things that last versus things that don't. Scripture does inform us of certain general areas in which God 
By the way, as you write God for shorthand, it's just a, it's like the capital letter O with a line through the middle of it. That's God. That's an abbreviation in Greek, right? The first letter, Theos, God. I gave you that before. While this is not a complete list, we will focus on seven areas that are highlighted in the New Testament concerning those things that God has called us to do. These seven areas of obedience will be taken into consideration when we meet the Lord in heaven. All right, first area. We know that God will reward his people for the manner in which we treat others, the manner in which we treat other people. Let's read Mark 10, 40 through, or Matthew 10, 40 to 42 here. Um, we're told, he who receives me, Jesus is speaking, he who, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now let's think about the context, the occasion. On, the occasion, on this occasion, Jesus was sending out his 12 disciples to carry his message to the people of Israel and eventually to all the nations of the world. They preached and performed miracles in his name. By the way, let me just say parenthetically, the commission in Matthew 10, I give you two passages, Matthew 10 and the other is Matthew 28, is a different commission. Remember in Matthew 10, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't even go speak to the Samaritans. Go strictly to the house of Israel because God is a promise-keeping God and he had promised the kingdom they would have received that kingdom had they responded, but of course they didn't, and God knew in advance they would not. But still, he underscores the promises made to Israel. And then later on, because of Israel's unbelief, their official rejection, of course, comes in Matthew 12, and so then you have Matthew 13 with the kingdom parables explaining, well, in light of Israel's official rejection... What's the status of the kingdom? And he tells those kingdom parables. But then when you come to the end of Matthew, he broadens the commission to all nations. And by nations, we're not thinking geographical locales. We're thinking about all the ethnicities of the world. Now, it is true that there are some ethnicities that follow, say, within a certain geographical boundary. French used to be largely French people. I think there's actually now more Muslims than French from other countries than there are actually French people. So the whole dynamic is changing. But the whole idea is ethnicities. And so for the last 400 years or so, we've called it the Great Commission because it's greater than the limited commission of Matthew 10. It was on this, it was in this context that Jesus promised those who would receive his disciples, in this case, of course, contextually, his apostles, and the promise is, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. It's a pretty remarkable promise. Even a cup of cold water. Jesus thought that they would represent him so completely that any person who receives an apostle will be receiving both him and the Father who sent him. We just read that in verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Such that they will share in some of the very rewards, rewards given to the apostles. So you're out there, you're preaching, your message is received, they're receiving me, they're receiving the Father, and when they're kindly to you as seen in their behavior towards you, God's going to reward them. The implication is that those who serve his disciples, described here as little ones, little ones here not being used of little children, it can be used in that way, but most often, like in 1 John and other places, it's used of believers. 
described here as little ones, will be rewarded, not because they are working for their salvation, but because they've received his grace by believing in Jesus and want his mission to succeed. That's the heart of all true believers. They want the mission to succeed. I've been into some countries where the religious folks have opposed us because they don't want the mission to to succeed because they have a different gospel. In a hot, dry climate, if available, even a cup of cold water is not expensive, such that even a poor person could help the cause by caring for his messengers. I think that's significant to ponder. We think, well, we have to be you know, big and wealthy to help the cause. Poor people can have the same kind of impact for the cause of the kingdom, even a cup of cold water. They could pull that off, right? Those who faithfully serve the Lord by receiving God's apostles, there's some typos. They're always gone after the night is over. That's why I'm up here with a pen. I only have so many hours. I I've already got 25 hours into this handout. I just didn't have any time left. Those who faithfully serve the Lord by receiving um, God's apostles, here likened to a prophet, since they were the entrusted preachers of God's message, will in turn be rewarded by Jesus who keeps very careful and detailed records. You know, I think that's one implication of the verse. If God sees a cup of cold water that you give for the cause of Christ to promote his mission, then he sees everything. And we're going to see all those other areas that he is observing as we work through this. This truth that God sees all that we do is also underscored in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this verse, Hebrews 6 and verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. For God to not forget your work would mean that he would have to deny his own nature. The Bible is clear that he cannot deny himself. This important verse that Paul gives, often totally ripped out of context, teaching things that has nothing to do with it. It's a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's what he'll do with unbelievers. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. So God will... In the end, reward believers, and he will punish unbelievers, those who are deemed here as those who deny and those who are faithless. Number nine, the writer is presenting a negative opposite in Hebrews 6.10, that God would be unjust in order to present a positive truth. For to even entertain that God is not unjust would be an understatement because in his person, he's imminently just. There's dozens and dozens of verses we could quote. I pulled this in Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect. It's one of the titles given to the Father in the Old Testament, and by the way, to the Son as well, as you know, to the Messiah. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He speaks here in verse 10, Hebrews 6.10, of their work and the love you have shown in order to to emphasize the difference between doing a task in the spirit or in the flesh. And so there are Christians who do service because they have to, and there are Christians who do their service for God because they want to. What's the difference? functioning in the flesh, functioning in the spirit. I talk to a lot of pastors. They call me and they feel the freedom and I return their calls. And a lot of them are miserable. And I say, man, you can gut it out, flesh it out, and not really have the joy of the Lord. And I said, you're just spinning your wheels. 
In the judgment seat of Christ, there's not much reward for that kind of service. And there's not that much, there's not any reward for that kind of service than anybody does who names the name of Christ. You know, we'll have a, I don't know how many people God will bring to our oyster roast on Friday night. You're invited if you're live streaming and you're local, we'd love to have you. It's a great opportunity to bring some friends and neighbors and But you'll see a lot of people out there who just love what they're doing. They're enjoying cooking those oysters and the chicken and all that's involved. They just love it. Great reward. But I've been in other situations where people are sucking it up and they're miserable. They don't like what they're doing. I got trash duty. Well, someone has to do the trash. (laughs) I'm the garbage man. Well, you're slinging garbage for Jesus if you're doing it filled with the Spirit. Jesus plainly taught that when you serve the saints of God, you are serving God himself. For he said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Contextually, he addresses the way Gentiles will treat Jews during the tribulation, but the principle applies in helping us to put our service into perspective. If you remember, we noted that there's a number of judgments, right, for the lost. And one of the judgments takes place on the earth in the valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kidron Valley. Joel speaks about it, the prophets speak about it, and it's for all those who survive the great tribulation when God, among other things, will separate unbelieving Gentiles from believing Gentiles. And if you read Matthew 25, there's three groups of people. There's sheep, there's goats, and there's my brethren. And the goats are identified by the way they treat the Jews. And that's not a bad rule of thumb today. Your anti-Semites typically are lost people. They're unbelievers. And what you will see during the tribulation period is people either will protect and get behind Israel or they'll persecute them and contribute to the execution of Jewish people. Their heads will be gone. But the principle, when Jesus said, hey, when was I in prison? When did you see me hungry? When did you see me naked? He's talking contextually about the way you treated Jewish people on that day, and the sheep will treat them righteously. But the principle applies in a number of realms, obviously. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's separating the lost from the saved based on the works that they do. It is true, 14, that sometimes we may find ourselves not wanting to do something. And so instead of serving in a spirit of love... We serve out of a sense of obligation. So remember, the love you have shown. All the scripture, by the way, is in blue, any scriptural words. And if or when that becomes the driving motive of your life, it is, often in, it is most often indicative of a heart that is out of fellowship with the Lord. Look, we can all have our moments, right? But what's our pattern? Do we love serving the Lord and his people? Sometimes the tasks that you are called to do are not always your favorite thing to do. And so some love to serve in the nursery. And others love to hang around and do the cleanup after having a thousand people for a picnic. While others prefer not. Sometimes we just need to stop and put in perspective. We need to remember that when we serve the saints, we are serving the Lord. This gives us persistence. Again, like think about our nursery. We have full-time people in there. They choose not to go to an adult Bible fellowship, though those adult Bible fellowships are to care for them if they're in the hospital or having to social. They're to know every full-time worker that's assigned to them so that they're included in those adult activities. But there are people out there caring for hundreds of children on Sunday morning. And that's what God's called them to do. That's their ministry. And then we supplement that with VIPs. Like on Wednesday nights, occasionally, Randy and Evelyn would say, you know, we need some VIPs. You're just in there to help the full-time worker. 
but it's an important ministry that you have. But when people develop an attitude like, you know, kids are a pain, you know, those little rugrats, that's the opposite of what Jesus Christ is like. That's a person who's either never matured or is just grossly carnal or maybe not even saved. Children play a high, high role in the heart of our Savior. That's why he often talks about those who will cause little children to stumble. It's better for a heavy millstone. Literally, the Greek text says a millstone pulled by a donkey. We're not talking about a little grinding stone that a woman uses to grind flour. We're talking about a millstone that's bigger than this pulpit. What number are we on? 18. Many of those described in Hebrews 6 did indeed love God, and they still had warm hearts, such that their service to the saints, their service to the saints was a persistent work, as evidenced by their, look at the words, having ministered in and still ministering to the saints. Sadly, there are a lot of believers who start a task, they just never finish it because they grow weary of the work, typically because they grow weary of people. And usually, when you find yourself growing weary of people, it is only because you've grown weary of God. And so when your love of God is low, then you will soon discover that your love of people to serve them is low. It's kind of a hand-in-glove reality, right? In one of the letters that Jesus gave, we read this in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. They stopped serving. That was indicative of being, I mean, who do you serve? You don't serve the air. You don't serve the chairs. You, you serve the people. And when you grow weary of people, you stop loving people and doing the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, you remember the lampstand was the testimony unfolded in Revelation 1 that a church has. And how many churches across America has, have had their lampstand pulled? Either they died or more often than not, they just, there's no life. They're dead institutions. They gather, they jump through all the religious hoops, but there's no life. No one ever gets saved. Nobody talks about being saved. No one's growing. There's no joy. There's no passion in the hearts of the people. There comes a point where God can have enough with the church, and he just pulls the lampstand. I'm not sure we think enough about that today. A love for God will always express itself in service to the saints. And that service is never forgotten by God and will be rewarded by him at the judgment of the just. As we consider the promised reward of Hebrews 6.10, it is important to note that all the work which they had done was shown toward his name, meaning they were not motivated by the reward, but they were motivated by his name. For God is not unjust again, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. In the Bible, number 23, the name of God stands for his person. We just explored that in great depth, didn't we, in Malachi, where they had abused and taken the name of the Lord in vain, not a curse word. That's certainly one way you can take the name of the Lord in vain, but there's a lot of other ways, right, if you were here. In the Bible, the name of God stands for his person, meaning these saints were motivated literally toward his name. That's what the text reads. Toward his name is captured here by the NAS because they were serving for God's glory. They're, they're, they're ministering toward the name of God, meaning for the glory of God. So what's our motivation? What are we doing it for? It's important to know that your serv that service for Christ that is done entirely for the glory of God will not be overlooked. Because if the truth were known, most of God's people serve in obscurity without any limelight behind the scenes, yet God misses none. 
How many of you know the names of the people who were up there on Wednesday nights? Yeah, Jason, you know, and his son, because that's their ministry. But half the time, we, we don't even know who's running the mixer board that, you know, for television and the sound and all that. There's a lot that's done in obscurity that nobody sees, but the Lord does. Even those Christians whom you see serve in a more public and prominent way, if they're doing anything worthwhile for God, most of their labor that makes them who they are and what they actually do is never seen by people. Just never see it. That ABF leader, you don't know how much time he pours over the scriptures to get up there to speak for an hour. Now, maybe someone's getting up there and winging it. But those who take the role seriously don't do that. You don't see that. It is the hidden life that makes the public life worthy of the kind of service that God will truly reward, and he, in his perfect justice, will never forget that work. When no one says to you that you're doing a really good job, or when no one says thank you, but you keep doing it because you are doing it for the sake of his name, God in his justice sees and takes notice and remembers that service what he does. God does not want his serious warning found in Hebrews 6.6 of getting stuck in immaturity to obscure the opposite aspect of the same truth. Turn to Hebrews for just a moment. This is a misunderstood passage. Um, Hebrews 6, I have several hours of teaching just in this section alone. Uh, contextually, if you look at 5.11, concerning him, Hebrews, by the way, if you're new, find Revelation, scan back, it's one, and you'll hit Hebrews. It's written to Jewish believers. Obviously, it's written before the temple is destroyed. So you know it's written before 70 AD right off. Why? Because some are going back into temple worship in order to escape persecution. Well, we'll look Jewish on the outside, though we believe in Yeshua. And that just, you know, nobody will boycott our business and they'll still like us. And so that's some of the issues they're dealing with. Concerning him, verse 11, chapter 5, meaning Melchizedek, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you meaning you all, you plural, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. How so? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, in light of what I've just spoken of, leaving the elementary teachings about the Messiah, the ABCs, Let's press on to maturity. That's the focus of the whole thing. It's not about losing salvation. It's about moving on to maturity. Remember, those chapter and verse divisions are, are artificial. And so he gives this warning about those who have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And people say, hey, there it is, loss of salvation. Well, let's keep reading on our handout. Um, God, again, number 28, I just read, God does not want his serious warning found in 6.6 of getting stuck in immaturity to obscure the opposite aspect of the same truth. If God's justice is such that the believer's spiritual rebellion cannot be ignored, then it is equally true that God's justice is such that our spiritual service and devotion and faithfulness to God's people for God's glory cannot be overlooked. Sadly, Hebrews 6 is used by some to falsely teach that we can lose our salvation, which in itself is contradictory not only to the rest of the New Testament, but to what the author of Hebrews has recorded concerning our security. I gave you three texts. Read through Hebrews. He affirms time and time again, either directly or indirectly, the eternal security of the believer. Give the guy some credit. 
God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't say over here, you can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. You're eternally secure, and over here you can. I mean, that's just poor handling of the Scripture. So some will say in Hebrews 6, he's not even dealing with a Christian, someone who's never been saved. They've come close. They've tasted of the good things of God. The problem with that is that sloppy exegesis. Because the word taste doesn't mean just a sample. It's the same word in the Greek New Testament use of Jesus who tasted death for us. He didn't just sample death. <laughs> he went all the way through it. So he's dealing with believers. Now, my focus is not to teach Hebrews 6, but I, well, what I don't want you to miss is if God doesn't overlook spiritual immaturity, such that he can deal with those who not reject salvation, but neglect salvation. Neither does he overlook spiritual service. Remember, one of the key principles in soundly interpreting the Bible is context, and that the truth is often ignored, and that truth is often ignored in this chapter, leading people to false conclusions. The focus of Hebrews 6 is not about salvation, but about our maturity and the rewards that someday will accompany that maturity. And so the chapter begins, the opening words, therefore leaving the elementary principles about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And then he dialogues some of those immature aspects of their life that showed that they were in infancy. They're very Jewish. They might not make a lot of sense to us unless we study each one carefully. But when you're studying, you oh, I can see what he's talking about. God, through the writer, is urging them to go beyond the elementary teachings about the Christ and to press on to maturity. He wants them to grow up. A failure to mature has implications concerning rewards. And so he writes, for the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things regarding you and things that accompany salvation, not salvation, things that accompany salvation, even though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name by having served and by still serving the saints. This illustration of a field reminds us of a similar point made by the apostle Paul when at the judgment seat of Christ, our works are tested with fire. We have already seen that it is not the believer who is burned or punished at this judgment, but it is one's useless works that are consumed by fire. This writer uses similar imagery to underscore that a field proves its worth by bearing fruit in the same way we make spiritual progress as we bear fruit. Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, which of course precedes the further explanation in 10 to 15 of the judgment seat of Christ, you are God's field. Even so here in Hebrews 6, it is the thorns and briars are burned, not the persons. Because like Paul, this writer is speaking of the possibility of losing one's reward. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Again, please note, he's not talking about the fire of hell, but the fire of the judgment seat of Christ, where every work will be tested with fire. Remember, we read this. If any, now, if any man builds on the foundation, remember the foundation was Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, two categories, one that's combustible, the other that's not, each man's work will become evident. For the day, speaking of the judgment day of believers, for the day will show it because it is to be re revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it, the foundation remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss because he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. 
Some Christians live their whole lives in immaturity because of compromise, which many of these Hebrew believers did in order to avoid hostility with the world. Read especially Hebrews 13 if you want to key on that. Their desire for peace with unbelieving Jews and their desire to be liked only led to compromise such that instead of producing mature fruit, their works were like ground that bears thorns and thistles to be burned. Again, as you read through the book of Hebrews, there's just a number of, of warning passages all the way through the book, you know, because he, 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 wants, he wants better things for them. And so, for instance, in chapter 2, he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Not if we reject. It's not what he's talking about. Neglect. These were believers who were neglecting their salvation. And in chapter 4, he, he illustrates it with Kadesh Barnea at the end of 3 into chapter 4. They had received a promise from God. The land is yours. The spies went in, not to see if they could take it, but how they would take it. But they come back, and instead of believing the word, the promise of God, they believe the majority report of men. And of course, the next day after God says, no, the only two that are going to go in is Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else is going to die in the wilderness 20 years of age and up. Oh, we can take it. We want to believe God now. And they foolishly go and try to take the land, and they're just battered and beaten. They lost the opportunity to serve. And one of the things that the writer of the Hebrews does is he deals with people who are playing with God, believers, and think it's no big deal. You know, I can toy with sin over here, and I can ignore obedience over here. And his warning is in chapter 4, look, the Word of God is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. You better pay attention to it because God can shelve you. And by choices you make, be unusable to the Lord. By how many times have you witnessed it? Have I witnessed it? Even of men in the ministry. Oh, they're still going through the the spiritual rigors of what they're supposed to do, but there's no fruit. It's a warning. We think, oh, you know, God, he just doesn't hug us all and he doesn't care. He does love us. But the writer of the Hebrews is going to underscore our need to revere the Lord because he is holy and we don't play games with him. And the consequences are grave. You say, well, have I reached that point? Well, if you care and you want to get it right, then obviously you haven't. But what happens is people don't care, they don't get it right, and they raise their families in that kind of atmosphere, and there's just failure after failure after failure. And it's sad. It's a sad commentary in light of what the Lord has done for us. What number are we on? 42, because they persisted in immaturity, they were in danger of God shelving them, where they were no longer, where they would no longer store up eternal treasure in heaven. And so when their lives are reviewed in heaven, their works end up being burned. Again, like the Apostle Paul's imagery, three times over in Hebrews 6 8, we find the pronoun it. It refers back to the vegetation just mentioned. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being burned, and it ends up being burned, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The life does not end up being burned in hell, but the fruit of that life ends up as worthless like wood, hay, and straw at the judgment of the just. Their eternally secure salvation was not in jeopardy, only their reward. Again, you know, it's just, it, it's sad when you get people using Hebrews 6 to say you can lose your salvation when the writer has already affirmed our security. It might be rather depressing if the writer to the Hebrews left them there. 
but he does not because he believes that they can press on to maturity and he is convinced of better things for them as God is for us. While God may discipline us, he will never condemn us, right? There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. While God may discipline us, he will never condemn us. And so the crop of God's blessing pictured in Hebrews 6, 7, is called in Hebrews 6, 9 as things that accompany salvation. Our God wants to make us fruitful. So God God wants to make us fruitful. That's the point. He's talking about things that accompany salvation. Not every believer bears the same amount of fruit, right? Jesus said some 100, some 60, some 30-fold, right? But every believer bears the same kind of fruit in character and conduct as proof that he is a child of God. Once again, God is not looking for people of great ability, but people who are available to obey as the Spirit empowers us and as in we are rewarded in eternity forever. You know, again, it's just a sobering thought as we, we spent a lot of time on this last week It's not like God puts us under this standard of you've got to lay up treasure in heaven. It's a command. But the basis for all commands is the love of God. We love him because he first loved us. He unconditionally, eternally loves the child of God, the one who has imputed righteousness as much as he loves his own son. So that's the motivation. But then the pressure is also off if we're yielded to the Spirit. And that's why the whole section on... The spirit-filled life is so critical. Teach your children how to walk in the spirit. They're a lot easier to raise. Spirit-filled children, those four commands, grieve not, quench not, walk by, so too. Four important commands that relate our life to God, the Holy Spirit. But if we're available, he ministers through us, and in eternity, he gives us the credit. That's the wonder of it all. So, you know, you ask yourself, am I spirit-filled? Is there a song in my heart? Am I joyous? I'm not saying that you run around with a plastic smile. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wept tears. But he was never, never not filled with the Spirit. So sometimes we have these images of what that's supposed to look like. But you have to look and ask, you know, what is my heart towards you, Lord? Is it warm? Am I doing this out of a deep sense of love for you because I just love you and I love those things that you love? If you love, um, what number, 50? Yeah, we know that God will reward us, reward his people for the manner in which we treat others and those others include not simply those who are saved but those who are lost. Jesus said this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners here, pagans, lost people, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind, ungrateful, and evil men. This, by the way, is from the Sermon on the Plain, different from the Sermon on the Mount, similar but very different. The occasion for this statement when Christ was addressing a large group of disciples, and Luke tells us from all Judea and Jerusalem, in the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who came to be healed and to be released from demon possession. Tons of Gentiles were there. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's a very Jewish message, if you remember, and he interfaces with the law, and you've heard it said, you've heard it written, but I say, and so on. Um, The Lord wants to make it clear that our character as his followers should be different from the characters seen in the world, 
for they only reciprocate with love and goodness only if they had done had good done to them and love shown to them since we are sons of a new covenant by which the spirit indwells us and empowers us right Jeremiah 31 Ezekiel 36 Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We should love even our enemies and bless them if it is our capacity to do, in our capacity to do so. God promises that at the judgment seat of Christ, our reward will be great when we behave as God behaves towards them, showing that we are different. If we are to display the title that is found, Sons of the Most High. What a great title that God would give to his children. If we are to display the title, Sons of the Most High, then we must show love and goodness and mercy like God, who is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Matthew 6.35, that from the Sermon on the Mount. Giving both sun and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God wants his people to behave as he behaves. And so despite the wickedness and hostility of some people, God will reward in heaven these kinds of choices we make, starting in the home, in church, and even to those who are lost. Starts in the home, you know, if it doesn't work in the home. That's why when God looks for people to serve in as an elder, not just to serve in the church, but as an elder. He he says, what's their home like? Don't tell me how many credentials he has after his name, PhD, Dr. Gumballs, or whatever it is. What's his home like? Because if he can't make it work in his home, he shouldn't export it into the church. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles here is a pagan. Even the pagans, do they not do the same? That's what they do. As God's people, we are called to live on a much higher plane than the lost people of this world who typically only return good for good and evil for evil. We must return good for evil, and in so doing, we will help to make them God's friends. I think we can push through. Number two, we know that God will reward his people. Here's the second realm. So the first realm is how we treat others, others being the body of Christ in a lost world. The second point that God will look at at the judgment seat of Christ is how we use our gifts in the church. When God adopted you into his family, he gave you a spiritual gift. The moment you were born again on the day God saved you, that is on your spiritual birthday, you received a birthday present that he expects you to find and to use in the local church that you are to be a part of. That's why we often say the New Testament knows nothing of unchurched people, people who are not members of a local assembly. In 1 Peter 4.10, there is an assumption by the Apostle Peter that our gifts are discoverable such that we can employ them in serving God's people. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When he mentions a special gift, contextually, he is referring not to your ability to sing in the choir or to play the piano or some athletic talent or an artistic talent or mechanical skill or the intellectual acumen that you may possess. True, the rest of the Bible teaches that someday we will all have to give an account for all that God has entrusted us with, including the natural talents and acquired skills. But in the context of 1 Peter 4, he's referring to the spiritual gift God gave you. And of course, that's something that you didn't have before you were saved. There's 20 of them listed in the New Testament, 16 that are operable and functional today. 
Unfortunately, the average Christian today suffers from the same malady that the Corinthians suffered from when Paul wrote, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. It's the word agnosis. Gnosis, knowledge, alpha gnosis, meaning no knowledge. King James says ignorant. It means we get our word ignoramus from it. And Paul underscores different realms in which Christians are ignoramuses. One is the rapture. Two is the subject of spiritual gifts. Three is how to deal with trials. And four, the nation of Israel. Those are the four areas he highlights. And it's interesting, the four areas he highlights are pretty much the same four today. And if that is your state, you, then you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org and take the test I wrote that will help you to discover your spiritual gift. Now, let me just say parenthetically, if you're a baby Christian, it may not shine yet because you just haven't had enough time to grow. When you hold your newborn, you don't know, are they going to be athletic? Are they going to be you know, mechanically, you don't know what their natural talents are until they grow. The same is true to some extent, but it doesn't take a long time. If you're on a path of growth, your spiritual gift will begin to manifest it, whether it's teaching or serving or mercy or, or administration or whatever it might be. We who have been saved have been given a spiritual gift, and it is our duty and our privilege to discover our spiritual gift, to develop our spiritual gift, and to put our spiritual gift to work as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Stewardship involves accountability. And when we meet Christ for our personal time of evaluation, we want to be found to be good stewards of the grace he gave us. They're called grace gifts, by the way. Stewardship defined biblically identifies God as the owner of everything, right? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And we, his people, as managers who will one day give an account. That's how the man is described, right? In Luke 16, that great parable. God makes the believer his co-worker in administering all aspects of our life. More often than not, when we think of good stewardship, we think of how we manage our finances and our faithfulness in paying God's tithes and offerings. That's what most people, stewardship, the church wants my money. That's all they think of. Stewardship, obviously, is much broader than that in the New Testament. Like, for instance, elders are called stewards of the church. The elders will give a very severe accounting someday at the judgment of the just. That's why you don't clamor towards it, because you incur stricter judgment. As we will learn, it is more than just how we manage our time and our possessions, but how we use everything, how we use everything entrusted to us, including our spiritual gifts. Faithful stewardship means that we fully acknowledge we're not our own, but that we belong to Christ who gave himself for us. We're not our own. By the way, that passage is in the context of sexual immorality. Different epistles are written for different reasons, like Ephesians underscore the body of Christ, Colossians underscore that Jesus is the head of the church, Corinthians to underscore sexual immorality. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And there's nothing more devastating to a person's spiritual life than sensuality. Whether it's watching television that's racy and compromised or music that communicates that or pornography, you want to short circuit your life and be put on a shelf and run down that and you'll have great regrets. You'll miss the wonder of the Christian life and the blessing of being able to build into others and especially your own children. And we say, oh, we can hide this. And these men tell me, I, I, nobody really knows. Well, God knows. And the fact is, is you're short-circuiting the leadership in your home. Your kids are growing up and they're not growing to be what they need to be because you're out in never, never land. Faithful stewardship, we acknowledge we're not our own. 14, these gifts 
are described as the manifold or the NAS 2020, the multifaceted grace, or as the varied grace of God, the CSB. Because first, we do not deserve or merit a particular gift. And second, by his design, there are many kinds needed for the church to work. The Apostle Paul will remind the Corinthians that there is one body of Christ, but there are indeed many members. And just as all the members in our human body do not function identically, nor do we in the body of Christ. You know this passage, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has, now God has placed the members, each one in the body, just as he desired. Again, the context is spiritual gifts. God gives you with the gifts, not because you deserve it. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. I think I'll give him a really super gift. Doesn't work that way. It may work that way in the world. It doesn't work that way in the church. If everybody were an eyeball, where would the sense of hearing be? If everyone were a pastor, who, who would serve behind the scenes? There's no insignificant people in the body of Christ. We think the upfront guy who's, you know, everybody, they know his name and they hear him. He's the important guy. That's not how God sees it. Simply summarized, everyone is gifted. There are no unimportant persons. When God saved you, he intended for you to function in one of his many churches. The concept of membership, the concept of committing yourself to a local assembly of believers comes from verses like these where we are called to serve. Being a member of Christ's body makes us members of one another. Romans 12.5, again, the subject there is spiritual gifts. And it is through your involvement in a local body of born-again Christians that you will discover your spiritual gift and be able to use your spiritual gift. You say, how so, Pastor? Well, just as my mouth does not have difficulty recognizing the hand that feeds it, since we are members of one another, as Romans 12, 5 indicates, then we can help each other recognize our spiritual gifts so we can employ them. You know, if you think you have the gift of teaching and nobody else has the gift of hearing, maybe that's not your spiritual gift. And so you see people function in different realms. You're around some people, all they do is encourage you. It's just like, man, this, well, maybe he's got the gift of exhortation. That guy, he, every time I see him, he, he's doing something. He's serving behind the scenes stuff. Maybe he's got the gift of serving. Now, with the non-signed gifts, everyone has a common responsibility. So you can't say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't share my faith. With every single non-signed gift in the New Testament, there's an accompanying command that applies to every believer. But some have a specialty in an area. Since one of the functions of a spiritual gift is that it brings blessing and strength to the body as you exercise it, certainly others will notice so you can use it. Let me close in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We're always sobered when we think of who you are and that you love us with an everlasting love, but you are holy and you expect your people to walk in holiness. You've called us to be so different from the world. And so we pray as we study your word in these weeks that our mind would indeed be recalibrated and in sync with what you have said in your holy and infallible word. We want to lift up Rick Forstner tonight as he's in Buford Memorial. And we just ask that this fusion of his spine where they inject cement or whatever it is, that it would work for him and relieve his pain so that he could walk. So we pray to all that you would guide those surgeons' hands supernaturally and allow him to recover. We pray for 
Ty and Jennifer Ty as he's struggled with this cancer and his numbers going in the wrong way. We pray for your intervention and that you would allow him to recover. Father, we think of those who will gather here on Friday evening. Help us to be sensitive to the many visitors that may come. We know that you see them as either eternally headed for heaven or eternally headed for hell. Help us to see people the way you see them. That we might care about their souls. We pray even on Sunday night as the kids run their little Grand Prix cars, those parents and grandparents who will come, and they never come, but they'll come for this. And we pray that the testimony of our people and even the gospel as it's briefly shared might be used of you to bring them into the kingdom. Father, we pray for our president tonight. We pray that you'd help him in his depravity to truly see Christ. Help him to make good decisions for Israel. You told us to pray for the peace of Israel as their northern border is being threatened this evening. We pray for your protection over them from Hezbollah. And we just thank you that your promises are true, that once gathered in the land, you said they'd never be removed. But we know that you work through means and through the prayers of your people. We thank you for saving us in your grace, for placing the Spirit of God in us, that we might all know you from the greatest to the least, that we all have equal access and all of us have an important role within the body that you've called us to. Help us to find that. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen.